0: Nobody's perfect. You ever said those words before? Of course you have. I have too. i I'm not sure where the phrase originated in our culture. I did a little hunting around this week to try to get to the bottom of that. Nobody's perfect. It's a phrase that's been around for some time. They were the final words spoken in the 1959 classic, Some Like It Hot. Well, Nobody's Perfect, Uh, it's also the title of a 1968 naval comedy film and the title of a short film from 2004 starring Hank Azaria, Nobody's Perfect. Nobody's Perfect was the name of an ABC sitcom that was launched in 1980 and ran for two months, canceled after eight episodes. Nobody's Perfect. Furthermore, Nobody's Perfect is the title of at least five books that I've been able to put a finger on since the the year uh, 1977, the year I was born. Five different books published in this country since the year of my birth, Um, the most interesting of which was a book that came out in 2011 about the almost but not quite no hitter that was pitched by Detroit Tiger Armando Galarraga, Nobody's Perfect, get it? And then there's the world of American popular music. And where do we even start? It's a relatively common song title, from Deep Purple to Mike and the Mechanics to Madonna to Chris Brown and Hannah Montana. They've all released songs with that title. Nobody's Perfect. We say it frequently. We hear it regularly. But is it true? That nobody's perfect. 2nd Samuel 22:31 says that God is perfect. Psalm 19:7 reminds us that God's law is perfect. The book of Hebrews says repeatedly that God's son and the sacrifice of God's son is perfect. Hebrews Hebrews 5.9, Hebrews 7.28, Hebrews 9.11, and I wouldn't believe it if it weren't in the Bible, but Hebrews 10.14 goes so far as to say that when a person is rightly related to God by grace through faith in Christ, that they are indeed perfected for all time. Now, we need to hear the whole verse so that we catch the biblical balance in context Speaking of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You hear the wonderful biblical balance there? Oh, there's equilibrium there. There's proportion in that verse. I'll read it for us one more time. Hebrews ten fourteen, For by a single offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So is it true that nobody's perfect? Well, in this world, of course, nobody's perfect. But in Christ, we most certainly are. And one day we will be. In this world, of course, nobody's perfect. But in Christ, everything's everything's different. We most certainly are perfect. And one day we will be perfect. Two weeks ago was Kickoff Sunday, and we began the application section of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And on Kickoff Sunday, we marveled that in the church, unity is something that we actually get to do because of what God in Christ has already done. Unity is not something we make as a church, it's something we maintain as a church. It's not something we create, it's something that we keep. Unity. And then last week, we began to discuss the issue of diversity. Local church unity doesn't mean local church uniformity. So, while it's true that we want to cultivate unity's practical fruits and celebrate unity's doctrinal fruits, Roots, it's also true that each and every one of us in Christ has a different gift or perhaps gifts to bring to the table, endowed by Christ himself, equipped by servants of the word of God, and engaged in the ministry of the local church. So unity, yes, and at the same time, in the same church, diversity, great diversity, both realities brought to us courtesy of our union with Jesus Christ. So, Ephesians thus far is about local church unity and local church diversity, and this morning we're going to round out the discussion with a message about local church maturity. Maturity. What is Christian maturity? Both individually as believers personally and then corporately as a church together. What is Christian maturity? What is it? What are the obstacles to Christian maturity? What stands in our way? And what's the road look like? If we began to actually walk toward that road, what would that road begin to look like for us? This morning, we plan to answer those questions as we consider a glorious goal, a huge hurdle, and the right road. First of three points today. Behold, the glorious goal of Christian maturity. Behold, the glorious goal of Christian maturity. Ephesians 4.13 begins with the word, until, until, and it's a word that to me indicates that verses 13 to 16 deserve a sermon of their own. You can't just tack that on at the end of verse 12, last week's sermon, because it's in verses 13 to 16, that we begin to see the goal of Christian maturity laid out for us. What's the goal of our mission as a local church? It's a good question to ask. I mean, What's the end game of our church's mission? To be and make disciples of Jesus. What, what are we doing and what are we aiming at? What's the final stage? What's the destination? And I can give it to you in one word. Perfection. Perfection you say no nobody's perfect no church is per- no church is ever going to be perfect and if that's the way that you think i'd just like for you to take a look at ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 and behold the glorious goal of christian maturity what's the function of local church unity coupled with local church diversity these two elements work together until verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You hear what he's saying? I mean, do you have this vision for your life? For our church, or perhaps the church that you're a part of? That Paul does. Does. Remember his prayer for the church in Ephesians 3.19? That you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. All he does here is echo that same prayer in terms of a vision statement for the church. Until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It Sounds like perfection to me. Paul's Praying for it in chapter 3, verse 9, 19, and now he's casting vision for it in Ephesians 4:13. That's Paul's vision. And did you know that that is our Lord's great burden, too? Jesus will not stop purifying his church until she reaches perfection. Listen to the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians 5:27. That he, Jesus, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's perfection. If we're in Christ, that's where we're headed. Now, here in Ephesians 4.13, it's not translated perfect, but mature. Yet we need to see that, though, this is the same word that Paul uses in other contexts. When we read in verse 13, until we all attain mature manhood, mature manhood, that's the word for perfect. Sometimes we see it rendered mature in our Bibles. Other times, it uses the P word. It says perfect. It's the same word, and it's the same goal. It means grown up. I love that. Entire Whole, mature, complete, lacking nothing. Note that verse 13 uses the word manhood or man in the singular. Mature manhood. The reason he does so is to indicate that the maturity, uh, the perfection that he's talking about, is for the whole church. Because back in Ephesians 2 We learned that all of our individual unions with Jesus Christ, all of our little individual vertical unions with Jesus, have a lot to say about our horizontal union with one another. Each of our individual vertical unions with Christ have a massive impact on our corporate horizontal union with each other. That's because at the moment that you're born again, whether you knew it or not, you were born into a family, you were born into the church. And the family is a new humanity, a new man. That's the way that Paul says it in Ephesians 2.15, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man. So together we are the body of Christ. And it's our aim, our ambition, and our objective as a church, if you like, is no child left behind. That's the idea. Everyone, individually and as a church, corporately brought to maturity. That goal crushes me. You have to understand, that's why I'm not particularly wound around the axle about the size of our church. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not overly concerned at this particular moment with our attendance, because Americans have a tendency to count Christians. And the Lord Jesus Christ has a tendency to weigh them. My first thought on a Sunday morning isn't, ah, okay, how many are here? But rather, my main concern on a Sunday morning is how many of those that are here are connected to this local church? How many of these are growing? How many of these are in a community group and using their gifts to serve and taking their next step of maturity with Jesus? That's my burning desire. Slow and steady builds the church. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Slow and steady builds the church. Our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus would be far better served by one hundred spiritual Navy seals than by 1,000 spiritual kindergartens. What's Christian maturity? Christian maturity is our minds captured by Christian convictions, our hearts blazing with Christian character, and our hands laboring with Christian competency. That's maturity. Don't you want that for yourself? do you want that for us as a church? In this world, of course nobody's perfect. But in Christ, we most certainly are, and that ought to be our our goal, because one day we will be. Paul captures the already-not-yet balance really, really well in Philippians 3, 12 to 15. Paul is the master of equilibrium. Listen to this. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have attained it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Did you hear that? He used the word perfect or mature twice. Not that I'm already perfect, mature, but I press on. Let all of us who are perfect, mature in Christ, think this way. Behold the glorious goal of Christian maturity. Second point today, beware the huge hurdle to Christian maturity. Beware the huge hurdle to Christian maturity. Maturity in the church as individuals and as a church is not without its hurdles. The impediments toward becoming spiritual grown-ups are many. The negative side of the ledger is vividly described by Paul in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and deceitful schemes. Now I think that maybe my favorite word in verse 14 is "we." that we may no longer be children. You know what Paul is doing there? Solidarity with the church. So as you read in Philippians 3.12, on one level, Paul just did not consider that he had attained to maturity. He throws himself in here. We, so that we may no longer be immature. He didn't believe that he had attained perfection, but that did not stop him from aiming for it and frankly therein lay his maturity. So here in Ephesians 4:14 he's warning the church of dangers of remaining immature in the faith and he gives three really striking rapid fire images here. Images used to describe a young, unformed, undeveloped condition. First he says we don't want to be tossed to and fro by the waves. And when you line this up with what James says in James 1.6, I think this essentially boils down to a kind of halting, hesitating, hovering kind of faith. James 1.6 adds a caption to the portrait that Paul paints in Ephesians 4.14. James 1.6 we read, The one who doubts is like a wave on the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. Now, in our current cultural climate, and sadly, even in the church today, doubt is really fashionable. Doubt is seen as humble, open-minded, innovative... But in the New Testament, doubt is seen as prideful, double-minded, and immature. Just last year, a well-known Twin Cities pastor published a book entitled, Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty. It's a book that celebrates the very thing that Paul is lamenting in verse 14. It's very sad. Paul, who taught one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. According to the New Testament, there's no benefit to the doubt. There are liabilities to the doubt. And certainty far from being an idol is just another word for faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. In fact, I think doubt was the very thing that, for example, Luke wrote his gospel to dispel. Uh, in Luke 1-4 we read that Luke said, I'm writing this so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty. Not open-minded ambiguity. And that leads us to the, the second image of, of immaturity, uh, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. The ancient church father Jerome uses uh, A great word here. He says, carried about by every blast of doctrine. That's the idea here. When you read wind, don't think spring breeze. Think winter storm. Not a puff, a gust of wind. So powerful and so sweeping, it is almost impossible not to feel its effects. The winds of doctrine blow quickly and swiftly through God's people. I am amazed at how fast certain books catch on and take root in the life of a church, both locally and globally. And rather than name a a number of titles that I think are singularly unhelpful, I'll just say this much. Rarely do great, solid Christian books sell like wildfire. Rarely. Now, there are surely exceptions to the rule. Uh, Pastor David Platt and his New York Times bestsellers, I concede, that's an amazing achievement. Platt is an outstanding author. Uh, another exception to the rule would be LeCrae's appearance on Jimmy Fallon last week. That was unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it's rare. Those are stunning exceptions to the rule. Allow me to lay down a caution. If a Christian book, some sort of resource, rockets to the top of the bestseller list, go slow. Go slow. Ask questions. Be discriminating. Read reviews. Ponder why a book has become so popular. What is it tapped into that the spirit of the age is so excited about? Um, if you want a dynamite place to start beginning to develop discernment beyond just the daily reading of Scripture, uh, go to discerningreader.com. Discerningreader.com. It's a treasure trove of spiritual discernment, giving you the straight scoop on a lot of great books and a lot of not-so-great books. Don't make the mistake of assuming a resource is... Quality is proportionate to its quantity sold. Third image here in verse 14. uh, Human cunning. Human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. This is interesting. This is a vivid picture that Paul's um, audience would have grasped immediately. He's comparing false teachers of his day to street hustlers. Charlatans who used dice games to defraud people of money. Con artists who use sleight-of-hand trickery to swindle and deceive naive people for their own advantage. Paul warns them to watch out for such. Now, over this last season, our family has discovered a a pretty cool TV program. It's called Penn & Teller Fool Us. And the premise of the show is for uh, amateur magicians to work their magic in front of this world-famous pair of illusionists and see if they can trick them and if they can if they can fool them if Penn and Teller don't know how the amateur magicians did the trick they get a shot to be on the stage with Penn and Teller in Vegas that's the that's the goal every now and then there is a young upstart performer that slips through the net every once in a while they get the wool pulled over their eyes but it's not very often. In fact, it's just devastating. Uh, Teller, you know, who doesn't say a word, that's part of his shtick. He's just writing down, writing down, writing down, and oftentimes when the trick is over, Teller will approach the guy and whisper in his ear, and the magician just crestfallen will sing. So it's great. The crowd is always amazed. I mean, they're just happy to see a show. Woo! Penn and Teller, wise and experienced elder statesman of magic, just sitting back, watching, seeing things people aren't picking up on. They see straight through the trick. And they call the magician's bluff almost every time. Now, there's such gentlemen about it. Uh, Typically, they don't expose the magician publicly. They just let them know, we know how you did it. Thanks them and moves on. Here's the point. As a church... If we're going to become mature, we have to have a sixth sense about this. We have to become more like Penn and Teller. We need a radar up for phony baloney when all around us, children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. We need to have the seasoned wisdom of these mentor magicians. Eyes quicker than hands. Able to spot spiritually bankrupt teaching and steer clear from it ourselves and help each other steer clear of it. Beware the huge hurdle toward Christian maturity. Third and final point this morning. Um, We've seen the hurdle. How do you get there? Well, betake the right road toward Christian maturity. Now, you're going to have to excuse my use of a 14th century verb. I know nobody says betake anymore, but it, it brings symmetry to the outline. Betake. It just means take, cause oneself to move. Take the right road. But take the right road to Christian maturity. And most of what verses 15 and 16 say are actually going to remain relatively unpacked because that is so much the burden of Seth's sermon next week. So... What we need to do, though, is suffice it to say, to at least point in the direction for us for today's text. Notice the rather in verse 15. Rather. To to approach the glorious goal of Christian maturity and to avoid the huge hurdle toward Christian maturity, we need to take the right road toward Christian maturity. And the road sign is clearly marked with a rather. Verse 15. Rather. Rather. Now, all I want to do is drill down on that really famous phrase, speaking the truth in love. Here's something that some of you may not know about this phrase. In verse 15, as Paul wrote it, the word speaking is not there in the original. Speaking, that's the English Standard Version's gloss for this. It's every English translation's gloss that I've ever seen. But the word for speaking is not there. What is there is the word for truth, except Paul turns it into a verb. So instead of speaking the truth in love, we have this really odd and really intriguing phrase, truthing in love. Seriously. Rather, truthing in love, we are to grow up into Christ. What does that mean? Well, I'm not sure if I know with precision, but here's what I think he's up to. True Christians are truth people. Not just speakers of truth, although that would be included here, devotees of truth. We care deeply about right thinking and sound doctrine and spiritual discernment. We are a people of the book. And the book has a lot of information in it. Amen? A lot of information. But information alone is not sufficient because the information is given for purposes of transformation. Scriptural light is designed to produce spiritual heat, which in our heads ought to ignite our hearts. Christian convictions should give rise to Christian character. So how do we develop Christian maturity? We commit our lives to truthing in love. We begin with a desire for the truth, the truth of God's Word, the truth about sin, the truth about heaven, the truth about hell, the truth about the gospel, the truth of the cross and the empty tomb and God's absolute sovereignty and salvation by grace through faith in Him, the truth about the exclusivity of Christ, the truth about the ethical and practical implications of all of those truths. We take those truths and we live them lovingly. Truthing. We're a, a truth people. We're truthing, but we're, we're truthing everywhere we go, but truthing in love. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5 says, the aim of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The aim of our instruction is love. So we have to outlove people. We have to. That's what the truth is given there to do. So truthing, but patient truthing. Kind truthing. Truthing that doesn't envy or boast. Truthing that's not rude. Truthing with manners. Truthing that's not irritable or resentful. Truthing that never rejoices with wrongdoing. Truthing that bears and believes and hopes and endures all things. Truthing with joy and peace And goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, truthing and love. That's what causes the church to grow up. The first conversion is the conversion to reality, to truth. The next conversion is the truth to love. That's what causes the church to grow up. Isn't that what this is saying? It's not just what we say in the matter. It's how we say it with our our manner. So betake the right road toward Christian maturity once again it's a call for community groups as we work these things out together side by side circling up in each other's living rooms you have that opportunity but take the right road toward Christian maturity so in this world of course nobody's perfect but in Christ we are and one day we will be behold the glorious goal of Christian maturity beware the huge hurdle toward Christian maturity and betake the right road toward Christian maturity. Truthing in love. And next week, Seth, will take us the next step and we'll pick up our study then. So right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, the Apostle Paul assumes something that is so precious that we ought not to take for granted in this church, Lord. Each and every one of us has a radical commitment to the truth, to the way that things actually are in this world, to truth that is spoken with precision and clarity, that's willing to call wrong, wrong and right, right, with a razor-sharp edge of clarity. And yet, father, that just it just begins to give us the opportunity to move in the direction that we ought to move, which is maturity. And love. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave this place that we are better equipped to love you through worship, to love one another through rich Christian fellowship, and to move outward into this community, to love people with great compassion and concern and evangelistic desire. God, please help us to Grow downward in this church in Christian maturity. May we con- concentrate on our depth. And Lord, in your time, take care of our breadth and our width. In Jesus' name, amen.